part of the book does focus on how we've lost our connection to nature and what the cost is of this nutrient depleted, crowding conditioned antibiotic shooting into our animals phenomena. So, so you're saying though, if an animal is raised properly, yes. uh, especially multi-generationally because of epigenetics, that they don't make amyloids. That's right, they are gonna make not the amyloids that we're eating that we can't digest. And you know what was really interesting? They did a study with mice, is that you fed them amyloids, the, uh, the mice became super inflamed, and then they died. Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that there's a new natural chemical that stops skunk smell. Now, if you grew up in New Mexico like I, like I did, and you've ever had your dog sprayed by a skunk, you know, oh, you dip them in vinegar, you wash them in tomato sauce, but basically your dog's going to smell bad for a long time. And if you ever hit one in your car, you know what I'm talking about. But the chemistry behind this is really interesting because there's a kind of fungus that makes a chemical that can snuff out the stink. And this comes from something called the Journal of Natural Products. And the compound is called paracosine. And it's from that fungus that reacts with the skunk spray's sulfur-containing compounds, which forms residues that don't smell bad to us that you can easily wash away. And that's interesting because... Researchers are pretty sure that the fungus uses that paracosin or paracosine, however you say it, to neutralize those noxious chemicals that it comes across in the wild. So this is a chemical defense system that you'd find in the forest, which is kind of interesting. Maybe we should keep some forests around. What do you think? And chemicals that are hard to wash away, like those stinky things from skunks, are problems because soap and even bleach doesn't do anything turns out a little bit of this chemical isn't going to harm you, but it takes away those things. And it turns out that they can add cosmetic ingredients to this. So what's going on? Like, I don't have skunks in my neighborhood. Why do I care, Dave? We didn't understand that nature did this, and we didn't understand that a fungus did this. So we got to ask ourselves, what else does fungus do in our guts, in our environment, in our food? Well, I've got an expert on the show who knows a thing or two about this. Fasting. It's one of the best biohacks because there are so many benefits to your body and it doesn't even cost anything. Fasting can help you live longer, increase your brain power, and even turn back your biological age because it induces something called autophagy. Autophagy swaps out old or damaged parts of your cells with fresh new ones. There is now an awesome product called Spermidine Life that actually tricks your body into thinking it's fasting, which triggers autophagy without any actual fasting required. Spermidine Life is extracted from non-GMO plants and it's super clean. Fast smarter, not harder. Add Spermidine Life to your stack today, whether or not you practice intermittent fasting. Go to spermidinelife.us, use code ASPRI25 for 25% off your first purchase. If your everyday routine looks like mine used to, it includes some bloating and gas, trouble losing weight, digestive issues, and probably microbial imbalances. When I learned that my gut microbiome was directly linked to all that stuff going on, I knew I had to do something, but it was hard to know what to do. And that's how I found out about Viome and the Viome Full Body Intelligence Test. Viome stands out because it uses gene expression analysis, which is RNA, instead of DNA, to figure out what my body needs. 
They even use information they learn about you to create 100% custom formulated supplements and personalized probiotics just for you. Viome gave me the information I needed to really upgrade my health. I've known the team at Viome for almost 10 years and worked with them on their recommendations. It's real science. Now you can give it a try too. Go to viome.com slash Dave and save $110 on the full body intelligence test. All right. Today's guest is a friend and her name is Terry Cochran. She is a integrative practitioner and a personalized healthcare person, I guess you could call it. She has a methodology called the Cochrane Method, which looks at biochemistry, nutrition, genetic tendencies, herbs, and counseling to figure out custom things that work when other people don't. And I found she has a very deep knowledge of some of these pathways inside the body that most of us have never heard of, and she knows how to hack them. And she's written a book called The Wildatarian Diet, Living as Nature Intended. So we're going to talk today about how what you eat turns your genes on or off. We're talking about epigenetics and nutrigenomics, and how things that you might have heard me refer to earlier, wild-caught, wild-fed proteins lead to better health, starting at your molecules, starting at your cells, and moving on up. We're also going to go deep on some of the cool biochemical reactions you don't know about in your body and why black beans suck. Terry, welcome to the show. Oh, Dave, it's so great to be with you and your audience. I was just thinking about the nightmare I had last night. And the nightmare was that someone gave me a kale salad black beans on top. I'm like, man, could you imagine something worse? No bueno, Dave. No bueno. <laughs> I don't know why I'm against <laughs> black beans today, but I can just tell you. Bean eaters. <laughs> All right. I was hoping that you were not going to say, but black beans are good for you. I knew you wouldn't. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, let's talk about your children, because as uh, as you talk about how you became the expert that you are, uh, what happens? Like, what what made you learn about this? Uh, well, the trajectory to a great discovery sometimes starts with a limiting belief system when someone tells you that your child will never be normal, will no, not grow past five foot four, and will live with brain seizures most of his life. Um, at the time I received that diagnosis when my son was three years old, I was working for a Fortune 50 company running one of their departments uh, managing over a billion dollars of assets. And when you hear that kind of information flood into your ears and then into your nervous system, it's quite a shock, of course. And the first thing you say is, well, maybe we can figure this out and live with it. And then as we went down the multiple rabbit holes of allergists and endocrinologists and um, other sorts of doctors, where my son was only further falling off the cliff, I made the determination that he would not be one of those statistics that I would be that mother that was going to try to figure it out. And the reason why I had that as a um, underlying uh, solution seeking mantra is because I'm a Cuban refugee and came to this country. We lost everything and my parents never lived in the uh, state or vibration of victimhood. Instead, we focused on solutions. How do we do the best we can with what we have and how do we surpass where we are? And so that really became very much of an undergirding as I became that health detective for my son while working in the financial services industry. So you're a, 
someone who manages complex and billion dollar plus cash management, investment management is a very complex system with tons of variables. And you turn that around and said, all right, I'm going to work on my son. So what, how's your son? Like what, what happened? Well, the boy that couldn't, uh, they said he would not be normal, and he, they were right. He became superhuman. <laughs> I heard there's a really good book out there that <laughs> was just released. Um, what we found was when we uncovered his underlying root causes, he became a uh, gold medalist at the Junior Olympics in karate, a national champion. He was the valediction speaker at his school. He uh, was on a full academic ride at University of Virginia became one of the top scholars there, started multiple programs in social justice at University of Virginia. He's a singer. He released an album, and now he's doing some some good work in social justice. He just moved to New York City. So we can we can call you a proud mom. So, um, oh, just a hi, little bit. Hi, high five, mom. Thank you. Now, it turns out that what you were feeding your son was a major variable here. How did you figure that out? Absolutely. I became this rabid researcher. I'm a risk manager. I was a risk manager, as you mentioned, for multiple billions of dollars of assets, and I soon became a risk manager for his health. And this was before Google wasn't even around. The internet was just starting um, almost 20 years ago. And so I went to libraries and I interviewed parents. I interviewed anyone I can get a hold of. But the one tipping point, and we hit that tipping point with a mountain of books on my kitchen table, it was food... um, allergies and allergy connection with food. And I realized that the standard American diet that I was feeding my son, although it was organic, I was feeding him peanuts every day. We'll talk about the, I called peanut the devil on steroids, you know, master major aflatoxin, which is a mycotoxin on on steroids. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were feeding him uh, wheat, which um, has glyphosates, as we now know, which are so deleterious uh, because of the Roundup that's sprayed on the the wheat crops. We were feeding him um, a lot of citrus and orange juice, which is sugar, which feeds the streptococcus in the candida that was so living in his body because he was given a regular dose of 60 milligrams of prednisone for a three-year-old. So That's a heavy-duty dose for an adult. It, it He was like Spider-Man. We had to pull him off the walls. He was so um, really jacked up. And that with a combination of albuterol, which is also a stimulant, this gentle young soul was really, really um, over overdriven in his adrenals. So those, you know, favorite foods of America, the peanut butter, the orange juice, the wheat, the corn, of course, because that's what we, you know, the popcorn and the corn, the, the, the corn chips, even as we moved away from gluten, there's so many products, as you know, that you don't eat gluten, but now you're eating corn and and uh, soy, which are just as deleterious for other reasons. So when I figured out that we eliminated those five foods within four days, he started breathing, and that was his journey to health. <laughs> <laughs> and it's especially you know twenty years ago, uh, it, it's hard for you know, if if you're twenty five years old, you were five years old and it was like this. But if you told someone what I eat changes how I feel, they would tell you you were stupid and paranoid. And like, but hold on That's a second right. here. I, I'm 300 pounds and my brain's all over the place and I feel like crap. And if I don't eat that, I can focus. I feel it. But then it's because that was something wrong with me and it was a moral failing. And we still have some of that mindset going on here. But the idea is I, I know some people who seem perfectly fine on corn. I, I still think it's bad for them, but it's not as bad for them as it is for someone else. 
What's your take on that? I mean, should the people who just like, yeah, I eat corn, I feel great. I, you know, I'm, I'm superhuman. Um, what's going on with just, I'm picking on corn there, but, but what's yeah. actually happening there? Is it bad for all of us or can some people get away with it or is it actually good for some people? Great question. So I, when somebody asks me, is this good, is this food good for me? My pat answer is maybe because yeah. it depends on your genetic blueprint and your current state of health. Now, having said that, there are such outliers that the body has to work so hard to get to homeostasis or rebalance itself, then I would say, why would you want to make your body work so hard? Yeah. So, you know, in terms of corn, the, the majority of corn is genetically modified, which doesn't even make it in an ancient form of corn that had a higher protein content, that had better minerals. But the standard American corn on our grocery shelves today is a mycotoxin, which is a fire starter for many, many on, bad corn. things in our body. Corn isn't a mycotoxin. You're saying it contains a mycotoxin. It contains, excuse me, it okay. contains mycotoxins. Absolutely. Why? Well, it's the, it's the way that we grow it. It's the way that we store it. And it's the way that we actually feed our monocropping. So we no longer do rotation in our crops when we plant every year. And so part of it is the nutrients, 90% of the soil has been nutrient depleted. So any of those, those same nutrients that get depleted year after year from the same crop, the crop won't receive it and the earth won't have it. So that's one of the primary reasons. There's some complexity there that I, I didn't think that you'd go there, but uh, we know we are going to go deeper about mycotoxins because you've really yep. studied them uh, yep. and uh, I would consider you an expert on them. But there's a fungus uh, called Fusarium. And the way you yes. think about mycotoxins, there's field toxins and there's storage toxins. And corn and grains in general, but corn specifically suffers from both. And what we used to have when we handled our soil correctly is we had Fusarium would grow in corn, you know, corn smut or corn rust. And you'd open mm -hmm. up the corn. There's some black stuff in there. You probably don't want to eat it. Although in Mexico, there's a kind of like deformed, ugly corn that's moldy corn. Um, and that's a safe species of mold for most people if you're not sensitive. Um, it's weird. But it looks like you're eating tumors. I don't think oh, it's that attractive. Anyway, I look at uh, I look at what's going on now. Well, when you spray glyphosate on the soil, it makes the fungus that's naturally present in the soil make 500 times more toxin. And Fusarium makes a bunch of them, but Fusaricin is one of them. And what ended up happening now is that Fusarium moved into the roots of our corn. So now it's part of the corn itself. So now you have these nice, juicy-looking corn kernels, but the Fusarium is built into the corn itself. And what is also not recognized is that corn will, and other plants, will complex the Fusarium to protect themselves. So they'll attach a sugar molecule to it, which means a Fusarium detection test won't detect the toxin. However, as soon as your body cleaves the sugar off with an enzyme in the stomach, you have fusaricin or the other toxins made by fusarium. So this whole complex system, you know, I'm talking with Lana and, you know, hey, popcorn cooked in butter, it's kind of delicious and it's not gluten. And so it's like, well, should we give it to the kids? I'm like, I, I don't think it's a good idea. Like, let's not get them hooked on popcorn. Um, at the same time, you know, it'd be nice to go buy some super high-end stuff. I've found over the last whatever, 15 years, the percentage of corn that's worth eating goes down and down and down to the point that I don't even bother trying anymore. But I do believe 15 years ago, you could occasionally get some good popcorn that wouldn't mess with you. I believe, I believe that too. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and Michael Pollan, 
The Omnivore's Dilemma, uh, author of The Omnivore's Dilemma, and then uh, many books beyond that, said that we were a bunch of walking corn sticks. And I take that (laughs) one step further. I say we're a bunch of walking mold sticks because (laughs) corn effectively translates to mold. And then as you talked about the glyphosate, the glyphosate deleterious on so many levels because one of the other things that it has done to us is that it has inhibited our body's ability to produce the gut bacteria, which breaks down oxalates, which has a tie-in to mycotoxins, therefore exacerbating our situation with things, all things mold and mycotoxic. Now, I'm well known because with Bulletproof Coffee, I said like ochratoxin A, which is a very well-known and well-characterized toxin that goes after the bladder and the yes. kidneys very specifically, and other parts of the mitochondria as well, but um, it's it's bad news, and it survives roasting. It is present in coffee and beer and wine uh, and grains in general, depending on the year and how they're grown. It is a, both a field toxin and a storage toxin, Yes. Um, and saying, I'm going to eliminate this as much as possible from coffee and put in very strict limits, and what do you know? I get a different result from my coffee. And it sure pissed off some coffee people, but guys, I've got the numbers. And by the way, so do <laughs> most of the global, most of the countries on the planet have standards, just not us in the US. Sorry, guys. Very grateful for that good coffee, Dave, because I drink it and I feel the difference. But it 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 still drives me nuts that people are like, oh, that's just marketing. I'm like, why do, why do I have 34 studies that I didn't pay for? Why did China put, a, I mean, China known for their food quality, why do they have standards for this toxin? Yet most people outside of agricultural research and, and, and people who are, are uh, growing animals like cows and sheep and chickens and pigs, they know about this toxin because it reduces fertility in their animals and they can't make money if they feed it to their animals, except if they feed it to them right before they're going to die, which is what they do. Absolutely. So like you and I are going to have to agree, and I think we do. This is an issue. People listening who are still skeptical, look, <laughs> I wish it wasn't. My life would be better without mycotoxins, except for penicillin. I like that one because it kind of can save your life if you're infected. That's right. Um, okay, so I feel like we've talked about the definition. Like these are poisons made by molds, but um, we haven't talked about something that you have really called out, uh, and it, it's one of the the seven pillars of aging in superhuman. I write about amyloids. I call it cellular straitjackets and all. But can you define what amyloids are for people? And then I want you to talk about your system view of mycotoxin stress, amyloids, and just inflammatory foods. But first, what is amyloid? Uh, amyloid is a misfolded protein that actually we have amyloids in our body. And when our body is in balance, it becomes part of our homeostatic mechanism, meaning we try to those amyloids in check are part of our eating away our inflammatory responses. However, we have now hit a tipping point on a misfolded protein structure coming from our food supply. And the biggest offender of that is, according to studies out of Cambridge and Japan, chicken. I have now deemed chicken the dirty bird. Chicken in its tissue, because of its crowding conditions, carries the highest amyloid count. And Dave, I will tell you, We are so in my practice with all the clinical outcomes. We had a type 1 diabetic. We were able to reduce his insulin by almost 90% and rid his of his um, osteomyelitis within four weeks. He had one meal of chicken and his blood sugar increased by 200 points for four days. I'm sorry, chicken's nasty. Like it's not good for (laughs) you. It is not on the bulletproof diet. It's in a yellow zone so people can eat it. But it's seriously, it's... (laughs) 
<laughs> it's not a good call. It's not a good call. So okay. what we have Keep found going. in Ergo, the wildatarian diet, is that we found through clinical literature and therefore the clinical outcomes in my practice is that our traditional animal meat, in particular chicken being worst, beef being second worst, and those there's, they've been studied specifically on amyloids, but also uh, turkey and pork, they carry these truncated protein structures. What's so interesting about these amyloids is that they're now being linked to contributing to autoimmune disease, to type 1 diabetes, to kidney disease, to Alzheimer's, to Parkinson's. And the dirty little secret, which I believe I'm pioneering in, is that we now know that the mycotoxins and the biofilm that they produce feed the amyloids. Well, why are amyloids so deleterious? It's because the viruses in our body use the amyloids the, to protect their protein coating. And so now what's happening is I'm, I'm saying these viruses are Rip Van Winkle coming up from a very, very long sleep. These viruses that used to impart immunity in us and are, are now beginning to impart autoimmunity because a, a reactivation of an IgG component, immunogammaglobulin, of a virus is being heralded to be contributory to polycystic ovarian syndrome through the varicella virus. Epstein-Barr, 82% of Hashimoto's linked to the Epstein-Barr virus of a reactivation. You don't have to have mono to have clinically Epstein-Barr doing bad things in your body. So these are just two of the big ones, but I'm, I'm calling it the ping pong effect. Bio, biofilm for the mycotoxins make amyloids, and guess what? Amyloids feed biofilm. Okay, and so, then the viruses hide inside the biofilm. So this is some complex stuff. So you eat something, or probably breathe something. It seems like environmental mycotoxins are worse than eating them, depending on the species and the dose and all that. Exactly. But so you're exposed, and now mycotoxins are antibiotics. There's this ancient war between fungus and mold and bacteria. That's why the first penicillin came from penicillium from cantaloupe, and they noticed, oh, it kills bacteria. And that's So the bacteria, they sense that these uh, fungal metabolites are there, and then the bacteria say, all right, we are going to do what I call the fourth F. You know, All life in order does fight or flee, you know, the fear thing, the food thing, the other F word that we all know, but I'm not allowed to say unless I want to mark this as explicit, <laughs> right? And then friend. So we, we, we unite and we either make an army or we make a factory and like we do stuff. So the mold metabolites force the bacteria to organize into these biofilms, right? Yes, Okay. exactly. Now I've got mold caused a biofilm in bacteria. Yes. Now link that to amyloids. So now we're, we're seeing that the, the biofilm has been linked to creating, feeding amyloid structures in our body. And then okay. the amyloids have been linked to having the viruses fortify themselves. And what I'm saying, it's reawakened. Okay. So then the amyloids made by the biofilm. So the biofilm is cranking out amyloids? Yes. And okay. the amyloids feed, they feed each other. Yes, and, indeed. And the amyloids are the armor-plated protection for the viruses so that they don't get taken out by our immune system. Exactly. Okay, so now we have a higher viral load because yes. of this. Okay. Yes. Now, um, chicken definitely raises insulin in most people. It's almost universally high in glyphosate and high in 
actually high in bad fats is one of the reasons it's low in my diet. It, it's high in omega-6. Even if you feed it coconut oil and and whatever, they just make a lot of omega-6. They do. So I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a fan of chicken. I do have five turkeys this year in, in our front yard feeding off whatever wild stuff they get. But uh, um, that's more because I want to eat their eggs. That's a wild bird. <laughs> yeah, ours are pretty darn wild. Uh, <laughs> and they're ugly. Good God. Anyway, now... You're saying something interesting, though. You're saying that beef and uh, pork are uh, are also really bad in this. Um, yet, wild hunters throughout all of history would eat those animals. You would eat a buffalo, which is basically a wild cow. Yes, <laughs> you would exactly. eat a wild boar. Uh, you would certainly, if you could get a bird, you, know, you have to have a sling to get one, um, or just eat a dodo bird or something. Uh, you'd pretty much eat those things. So wildatarian diet, yet, okay, beef bad for you? I don't know. I kind of like my beef in my land. So so it's really interesting. So to your point, what we're finding is when we live and eat as nature intended, which was before the crowding conditions, the antibiotics, the hormones, the feeding of corn, the torturing of these animals, these animals did not produce the amyloids in their tissue. <laughs> so it's not beef. It's industrial meat that's the issue. There you go. All right. If we can get back to what nature intended, beef will be fine, but we know that DNA transfers generationally. And so we've got to make sure that that pasture-fed cow, we, first we have to define what is pasture-fed because is it pasture-fed? Is it pasture-finished? What does the FDA allow as meaning to be pasture-fed? Do they need to be out on the pasture for five minutes in their lifetime? So first identify what it, it means. And then secondly, if if, in fact, we can return these species to the way that nature intended, we will once again have these rich meats and amino acids. And the good omegas, we know that bison is much, it, what the studies show that bison is actually higher in omega-3s than salmon. At least if the bison is fed right. If it's a I, happy bison, we have to make sure that they're happy and not tortured, exactly. I, I remember uh, a while back, I went to Central Markets in Austin and uh, they've been a long time uh, supporter of Bulletproof. And I went in and I, I went to the meat counter there and they had this most amazing grass-fed bison and the fat was orange. And see, this is what healthy uh, uh, ruminants do. They make yellow and orange fat because it's Absolutely. full of carotenoids from their diet. And the butcher, I talked to him about it. I said, that's the most amazing thing. I'm sad I'm in a hotel room. Like, I just want to buy that and eat it. And he said, yeah, you're unusual. He said, I'm going to discontinue that. And I said, why? And he said, because people don't want to buy orange fat. They think it should be white. Oh, my goodness. And, and I'm like, no, give me the yellow fat. That, that's the most flavorful, amazing stuff. And in, in Superhuman, like, look, you should be eating less than 20% of your calories from, from animals or just from any kind of protein, even if it's yes. these plant proteins, which are quite often toxic for you. And the reason you do that is because excessive protein is a bad fuel source, but you also, when you think about it like that, you can afford grass-fed meat and we can have distributed agriculture, which makes soil, which sucks carbon out of the air. And so I'm just, I gotta say this, if you're vegan and you're listening to this and you don't already hate me uh, for saying the vegan diet's unhealthy, I am more in alignment with you. Like eat your damn veggies and don't torture animals. I do not eat, I will not eat, industrial meat. I order the vegetarian meal at a restaurant, usually actually vegan because they're using crappy proteins in right. the vegetarian stuff. So I'll add butter to my vegetables. So 
like this is how I actually have eaten for more than 10 years. Actually, now, geez, like 18 years, I think. And it has changed my entire life. That's why I have animals in my backyard, because I can eat them and I know what yes. they ate. Uh, so I just, I'll, I'll get off my high horse in a minute here, but you're providing the science to support the, uh, the behaviors there that I'm recommending that you recommend in the Wildetarian book. And it's how hard is it for you? Like, like people listening right now, they're, they're going, I just, it's too much. Like, like seriously, I just want to eat my chicken wings. How much, how much time and energy do you put into getting your meat? I say we can be wild in five. Seriously, it, uh, and Dave, you know, you, in five minutes, Yeah, <laughs> we can get, we can be wild in five minutes and we can either prep or make a meal in five. Just know where your sources are coming from. I have an organic butcher called the organic butcher here in McLean, and I know the owner. We know where their sources are coming from. I just bought some elk and some antelope from him this weekend. They're fabulous. I had this amazing elk tenderloin. Incredible. Um, so know your sources and it can be very easily procured. We just have to be informed. And I completely agree with you in terms of the wildetarian diet. We say we're equal opportunity. You can be plant-based, you can be fish-based, you can be combo platter-based, just eat based to your, to, to your genetic blueprint and where you are on your health continuum. Now, in terms of being plant-based, how do you be plant-based without making nutrient depleted soil, Terry? That's a really good question, Dave. Well, one of the things we can do is getting back to our smaller gardens, going back to community community gardens, going back to Wait, hold those. On. Don't you have to put animal poop in the soil in your community garden? Um, I don't know if we have to poop put animal poop in the soil. I think we can get nutrient rich soil. I know we went and we need nitrogen, and this is a question that may be out of my realm right. of expertise, but. I do believe that part of it is stopping the monocropping. We are this, there is no sustainability in large-scale agriculture as we know it today in the United States. It, our soil is toast, and we've destroyed millions of square miles of prairie, which was healthy soil, to make corn, to make ethanol because of bad legislation and just dumb behaviors. So we, we've got to get that fixed. But I, I do know as a, a permaculturalist, as an organic farmer, uh, where there have been pigs, where there have been sheep, you have amazingly fertile soil. And yes. where there are no animals, you get a slow decline in the soil. And I do have wild animals. We actually have three bears in the backyard right now. So the, Beautiful. Um, hopefully the electric fences work against them. I haven't, they, they haven't tried to go after the sheep yet. <laughs> uh, and if they get one, well, more power to them. Well, you know what's really interesting, Dave, is I visited uh, Polyface Farms and the work of Joel Soliton. Yeah. I went to his lunatics tour. Yeah, he's he's <laughs> been on the show a while back. Fantastic. He took a decimated piece of property and created a utopian society for little happy animals, and he did it with their with their poop. Yeah. And, so and so I don't think we can support a plant based diet. I think it's actually environmentally harmful. And there's, there's people are saying, oh, I'm just going to eat plants. <laughs> We're almost out of the nitrogen we mine to feed you those plants. The only yes. way we can get that is by rotating our crops and having yes. animals come through between the crops and crap on the ground. This is how it works. And until we have some some other technology where we shine a laser at the ground that grows soil or something, if everyone eats plants, we will have exactly zero of the heritage species that have kept all all humans alive for probably 10,000 plus years. 
that, you know, that's a really brilliant statement. And what I do know and what I believe has not been proven yet is this methane that they're saying from the hooved animals. Well, we, how is it now that we're producing so much methane when they, they have been on the planet for millennia? My theory is they're eating indigestible food. When we can't digest our food, what do we do? We produce methane. Feed them yeah. what they were intended to eat, and the methane, the methane concentrations will go down. They're meant to be herbivores, and corn is not not considered to be healthy for them Maybe on any level. Cut the antibiotics out of their diets. Because, oh, for sure, yeah, that goes so, without saying. Absolutely. And there have been a few studies of you know grass fed uh, animals saying, oh, they they might make more, they might make less. The studies aren't conclusive by a long mm-hmm. shot. Uh, bottom line, though, is I actually helped to fund the Carbon Capture X Prize, where mm. they're. Uh, we're actually awarding the first team who can capture carbon out of the air, um, a, a sizable, it's like five or ten million dollar prize. And I'm re- I've really looked at this. Soil is the most efficient carbon capture thing out there. So even if an animal makes carbon dioxide or methane, if the soil that it produces sucks more than that out, we still win. And if you want to eat that nutrient food for for the vegetable portion of your diet, if there is no demand for a diverse species of or diverse set of species of the animals that are part of agriculture, there will be no more animals. Like they will literally all die. And we've already lost thousands of variants of cattle and sheep. Uh, for instance, the sheep in my in my pasture, they're a kind that are pretty good for wool, pretty good for milk, and pretty good for meat. Now, this is a hard to find species because who wants pretty good? If you're growing wool, you want ones that are basically stick and fluff. Right. So you kill all the ones that aren't that. And if you want ones for meat, you want ones that are just walking muscle with no, uh, no. So we end up with these weird, you know, turkeys with Mutations. breasts that are so big. Those are bad for us. And, and to go back to this wildatarian world, I feel like we've got to address agriculture. I know that's not your main focus, but I, I just want people listening. If you read the wildatarian diet, you read the Bulletproof diet, you, you, you just say, I'm going to eat a, an animal in its natural state. Uh, it's hard to find them. But if you say, oh, I'm not going to ever eat an animal because then an animal would have to be killed, you are not going to be able to feed your children if you keep doing that. I, I just That's true. I agree, Dave. And, and part of the book does focus on how we've lost our connection to nature and what the cost is of this nutrient-depleted, crowding-conditioned, antibiotic-shooting into our animals phenomena. So, so you're saying, though, if an animal is raised properly— Yes. Uh, especially multi-generationally because of epigenetics, that they don't make amyloids. That's right. They are going to make not the amyloids that we're eating that we can't digest. And you know what was really interesting? They did a study with mice is that you fed them amyloids, the uh, the mice became super inflamed, and then they died. Uh, you stopped feeding the, amylo- the amyloids to the mice, and the no, amyloids were gone in their little bodies. And so this is, there's so much nutritional beauty in how we can resolve chronic conditions in our country. If we focus on the food, it's the alpha and the omega. I say, if you can do everything else right, you get the food wrong, you're still not going to get it right. In Superhuman, I really dug in on, okay, why are we getting this less flexible tissue? And I looked at amyloids, and they're just less digestible proteins. Now, why do our bodies make amyloids? Because beta amyloid in the brain is well known for people used to think it was a cause of Alzheimer's. Some people still do. It's very clearly a symptom of whatever's causing Alzheimer's, which is metabolic dysfunction. Yes. And with amyloids, the more inflammation you have in the body, the more amyloids you get. Amyloids are basically like like calluses or scar tissue on your cells. Exactly. And if you take an animal and you stress it its entire life and you feed it crap, 
and you you do things like calculate the caloric uh, efficiency, and you can hack that. You know, you you can put a mycotoxin in a cow's ear, and it'll get fat on one third less calories, and you'll make one third more money, mm-hmm. right? That's disgusting and horrible, but they do it. So you get these inflamed animals. You eat an inflamed animal. Oh my God, might you also get inflamed? It's not that hard to understand, but this is what's going on. And amyloids are one of those smoking guns of aging, the seven pillars of aging. Reduce your amyloids, live longer. Absolutely. Okay. So it's an inflammatory problem, like almost everything else. It is. And you're saying wild animals are less inflamed than industrial animals. Go figure. All right. (laughs) Terry, I'm I'm getting it. Okay. So the things that cause amyloids, um, one of them is mycotoxins because these even at parts per billion level of mold toxins cause tissues in humans and animals to become inflamed, which causes amyloid production. Yes, sir. Okay. And what hasn't been clear until you've really been the the guiding voice on this, uh, you're saying, okay, now these amyloids are there. What are they doing besides just keeping your tissues from being flexible? Oh, they're making the viral load worse. Indeed. Indeed. That's really, we have done so much great work, Dave, on identifying these reactivation of viruses when people have been diagnosed with end-stage cancer or infertility or MS or Hashimoto's, and you look at their viral load, you make them wild, (laughs) you stop feeding the amyloid structures, you lower their mycotoxin um, uh, proportions in their body, you feed them the right fats, depending on their genetic blueprint to see how much fat they can assimilate. And these situations resolve over and over and over again. The body is highly intelligent and wants to be in balance. So when your viral load goes up, that causes inflammation, right? Yes, sir. Which creates more amyloids and all that. So what starts the cycle? Is Is it eating amyloids? Is it eating mycotoxins? I think it's the trifecta. Okay. It's the fact that we have the glyphosate, which has done a what I've given us a triple whammy. Glyphosate, which is also called Roundup, which is roundly sprayed on our crops and particularly wheat, it does three very bad things for us. It mimics the amino acid glycine. Glycine is necessary for the production of hydrochloric acid, which not only breaks down protein, but it helps to break down the overgrowth of bacteria and bad boys in our system. It also interrupts the body's ability to convert sulfur to sulfate. So all those happy little vegetables of kale, which I now call killer kale, depending on your genetic blueprinting and <laughs> your, <laughs> your current Screw you, of kale. It. <laughs> all right, um, it stops the body's ability to assimilate sulfur. And so sulfur, which is so important for our gut integrity, our brain function, our neurotransmitters, our tendons. We're getting stuck in this sulfur metabolite, so we can't do what we're supposed to do. And then the third thing is it has really reduced the body's ability to produce the good gut bacteria that makes us able to metabolize oxalates, which are found in spinach and almonds and those nasty black beans that we talked about. Hold on um, a second. We haven't talked much about oxalates. Okay. Oh. Um, I, <laughs> I, really, yeah. I really offended Joe Rogan. Uh, when I went on his show, because he was telling people to drink these raw kale smoothies in the morning. And I'm like, Joe, like, let's go through some chemistry. Like, let's maybe we can modify this. Let's just like cook our kale and dump the water. And uh, I, I think I, I hurt his feelings um, uh, because he got a little upset or maybe it was financially motivated after that. I don't know. I'm not going to I'm not going to ascribe motive uh, to poor behavior. But 
I do know that a lot less people are drinking kale smoothies now because of that oxalic acid problem. Like, oh, why do my joints hurt? Why do I have muffin top? Uh, it's because of, of this stuff. So what are oxalates? Like walk me through the biochemistry of what they do in the body. Okay, so oxalic acid. So oxalates, and you have you have genetic predispositions. There's certain genetic polymorphisms that will make you less likely to be a great metabolizer of oxalates. And we've heard the oxalates of kidney stones and gallstones. They create calcium crystals within our body. But the the other thing that oxalates can do, it's been really now linked to autism. Oh yeah, totally. Right. So how these oxalates will disrupt the dopamine metabolism and dopamine is, is our happy, feel good, sleep good, have executive functioning neurotransmitters. But what's so interesting, Dave, is that the freaking mycotoxins, which then make aspergillus, which then feed the oxalates. Aspergillus which makes ox oxalates in it, your exactly. gut if you have it. Yes, exactly. So it's again that ping pong effect. Yeah. So now we can no longer rely on healthy foods that are high in oxalate acid if we have certain genetic predispositions, if we've been exposed to mycotoxins, if we've been over consumed with amyloids, and if we're stressed, which is the next big thing. So if you're in perfect health, you can eat kale. <laughs> but if you're not in perfect health, it's bad for you. I say, I call it killer kale. Uh, you know, it's not good for me. It's not good for a lot of my clients. And they come into me and saying, I'm so sore and I don't understand because I'm having kale smoothies every day. I, I'm arthritic and I feel like I'm, you know, 150. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Said, this is doing? how it is. <laughs> but kale is a, is, it's a plant-based food, right? It is. Therefore, all plant-based foods will kill you. Uh, no. Oh, hold on. I was using vegan logic because <laughs> one animal protein is bad for you. Therefore, they all will kill you. You didn't know? No, that's true. That's why we're all bio-individual, Dave. That, that's actually the first sometime. chapter of the China study. Is this the one um, extracted protein from milk, casein, which isn't good for you, because that's bad. All all animal proteins are bad. Like, it's bad logic. So bad logic. I, I will say that if people, most people want to eat a piece of kale every now and then, you want that kale, bacon, whatever thing, it's probably fine. For me, it actually gives me sore joints and makes me kind of pissed off, and I don't eat it. And And, and it's okay. Uh, either way, but this idea that it, it's going to be good for you, oxalic acid is the plant defense compound that you're not going to be able to handle unless you're in perfect health. And if you're in perfect health, is kale a great choice? I don't think it's a great choice because it actually they've done studies on kale. It really absorbs all these toxins. It's yeah, like thallium. It's like a sponge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in fact, thallium is called the poisoner's poison. It, it's yes. one of the the longstanding things that they, they would do for thousands of years, especially in Russia. Uh, and thallium is, it replaces potassium in the body and kale absorbs thallium from the environment better than anything else. And this is in superhuman, uh, the toxic metals are a bigger and bigger problem. Absolutely. And they will cause inflammation, which causes amyloids, which puts you right back on this cycle that you just described. Uh, so I'm, you know, I, I don't want to pick just on kale, but I, I will say that my pigs and sheep will spit out raw kale. They don't eat it. Well, that's why I've deemed it killer kale because yeah. it's got so many things that could go wrong. And okay. so why do we want to risk it? You know, again, if you're in perfect health every here and there, but I don't like it. I, I accidentally took a kale smoothie and I had to get off the highway because my brain was not working properly. And, and you have a, a more extreme response to it than the average person probably. Is yes, that genetic? Is that because you had unhealthy behaviors in the past? Like why you? Well, why me? Well, great question. I do have all the genes. I have I have the SUOX gene. I have the CBS gene. I've got the cytochrome P450 family of genes. I've got um, compound uh, heterozygous for the uh, methylation uh, SNPs. 
I should say snips, not jeans. Uh, and so I'm more delicate. I'm a delicate flower, but it doesn't. But I'm also incredibly robust because I know what to eat and how to eat. And doesn't mean I'm deprived in any way. I'm a complete foodie. You and I have dined together. Yeah. We enjoy beautiful food together, but beautiful food that is beautiful for us. I actually saw you flicking black beans at JJ Virgin. Was that? <laughs> Did you catch that on camera? <laughs> <laughs> I hope JJ's listening. Uh, <laughs> if you guys don't know, she, she's been on the show several times. She's a dear friend and has endorsed some of my books and all. And uh, uh, I, I have no idea if she's hugely into black beans or not. I'm just kidding. Uh, but the the idea that um, black beans are high in oxalic acid isn't out there. So saying, oh, I'm going to be healthy. Okay, I'm feeling bad. I'm fat. I'm puffy. I'm inflamed. Uh, and I want to be healthy. So I'm going to get rid of the industrial meat in my taco and make a black bean taco. Now, getting rid of industrial meat, thumbs up. If you eat industrial meat, you're a bad person because you're torturing animals, destroying the soil, destroying the environment, creating antibiotic resistance, feeding corn and glyphosate, and just like, seriously, it sucks. It's not it's not food, don't do that. Okay, but is which is better, black beans? Or what, what should you put in your damn taco? Although you're gonna get, you have to get rid of the flour and corn tortilla as well. But anyway, what, what, do, you, what do you eat if, you're, if you don't have access at some restaurant to grass-fed meat? What, what are your That's choices? It's a really good question. So I gravitate towards lamb. I really like lamb. There's a, you know, in the yep. restaurants, you can find some lamb. Love it. Lamb, you know, the conjugated linoleic acid, my brain food, baby. I love that stuff. I just go outside and take a bite of the lamb. <laughs> lamb sushi. <laughs> lamb on the cob, I like to call it. Lamb on the no. cob. Um, so when I, okay. I love it. I also look at lower lower mycotoxin options. But, but hold, beans. hold on a second. You can get lamb unless you're going to spend like 40 bucks on a meal. Like it's lunchtime. Well, I, I, I'm going to. So, so what, I mean, what do you order? Like you, you, So I do order. I, you know, I, I have my restaurants that I, I gravitate towards. I mm -hmm. won't eat chicken. So if if you have the what I call the least worse options, right? Yeah. So chicken, I will never put on my plate anymore. I know too much about it. I haven't had it in two years. Not one stick of chicken. I haven't had it in 10 years. Oh, I don't man. eat you, that crap. Oh, I love it. I'm going to put you in my next well, book. You can feel a difference. Like, like seriously, you if you go on a chicken-free diet for a while and then just go pound some chicken and feel what, just look at your love handles the next one. It's very obvious. Very obvious. So what I usually try to do is I'll try to go with fish. You know, yeah. fish tends to be generally safer. I won't do black beans, but it, I, I, I'll if you have a lentil soup, even though it's a little bit got mycotoxin. So as I look at what the hierarchy of needs in is in the in that food constituent, lentils will also afford me some B12, which is really important for my methylation genes, and it'll also uh, give me some good iron, and it's got a lot of good fiber. So sometimes we make the least worst choices. Got it. So you'll eat lentils at a restaurant. Um, if you have to, but they're not your first choice. They're not my first choice. Yeah. Usually it's going to be fish or lamb. So I, I would say lentils, uh, even on the Bulletproof uh, roadmap, lentils are much higher than you know the, the corn and wheat berry soup, right? So it, it's not like it's binary. In some no. cases, for me, like chicken, it's, it's binary. Like I'd rather just fast. Exactly. I'm not eating exactly. that. Exactly. Me too. Uh, and if it's industrial meat, even if it's you know a nice uh, USDA prime uh, ribeye. Sorry, if it's not grass fed, it's not food. It is. I I will fast, or I'll eat the broccoli. Right. Yes. Or, or I mean, I've been to remote parts of China where <laughs> there's not food safety. I'll have the white rice, thank you very much, and I'll pour my brain octane on there. Absolutely. Um, and great you know, idea. The some, brain octane on white rice powder. Right. Like you can do that. Uh, but, you can. But when you look at food through that lens, you realize, oh, I, I went to the restaurant. All right. I, I'm going to challenge you, Taco Ooh. Bell. 
oh gosh, oh, ah, uh, lettuce, uh, <laughs> pinto beans. <laughs> now, I'm not eating pinto beans, and I'll be inflamed and fart for a week. I know, I know. It's just that's a good one. Um, you just keep driving. And there, there's going to be MSG <laughs> in the rice too. So at that one. <laughs> Keep driving is what I do. Or lettuce, but seriously, why bother eating lettuce? There's no food right. in there. No. Uh, so there are places where you're like, oh, I don't eat there. It's in Subway. Yeah. Uh, sorry, guys. You know, Jared Jared might have lost some weight there, um, but uh, yeah. we all know about Jared. Uh, so like, what do you do there? It, you you simply say, I'm going to vote with my dollars. I don't like this bread is not really bread. This meat is not really meat. It's not like it, it's not in my universe. And I can tell you, I don't see Subway. It, when, when you realize this isn't food, your body will True. edit them out of your environment. Absolutely. And, yeah. People say, oh, it's by the McDonald's. I'm like, where's the McDonald's? I'm like, it's around the corner from you. I'm like, really? Because it's no longer marked in my mind as food. And sorry, McDonald's. You know, I, I, I see that you're actually changing. Some of your patties are actually all beef now. Yes. <laughs> but they're all industrial beef. Come yeah. on. Like, we, we, we just have to upgrade. Anyway, I'll get off my, my soapbox there. But the point there is if you go to a restaurant that's a decent restaurant, you can usually find a piece of fish. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Now, here's the hard question. Will you eat a piece of farm salmon? Wow. Okay. It depends on how hungry I am. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. I'm the same way. I will eat it if I'm really starving. And I've been in a conference for several days and it's I'm still going to get something. And it what it's going to do, what really kicks my patookas, oxalates, chicken, amyloids, yep. and sulfur. Those those three are my non-negotiables. Now, you talk about sulfur, and it's interesting because certainly sulfur can mess with people, but glutathione is a sulfur-containing molecule. I drink a lot of San Pellegrino because it's high in sulfate, which your body actually needs. Let's go into, like, what's the deal? Why is sulfur good? Why is sulfur bad? Okay, so sulfur. Sulfur in the form of sulfate, as you noted, is actually quite good. Quite good for our tendons, our joints, our mental health, our gut health. We need it. But we can't get to it because glyphosate has interrupted its pathway. And with my genetic predisposition, I that will also turn, turn to calcifications for me and it will leak my gut. It's been really linked. Impaired sulfur processing has been really linked to um, IBS, IBD, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis. It does a number on our gut. Um, and so for me, I call, I have, there's a continuum of sulfur. I call broccoli and cauliflower, the kinder, gentler sulfurs. Why is cauliflower kinder? Because it also contains manganese, which helps reduce histamine response. And if sulfur is going to give me a histamine response and cauliflower lowers the histamine response, it's a net zero in that piece of it. Couldn't we just pound some manganese capsules and be done with it? We can, we can, but we don't want to be too high in manganese. Yeah, but manganese yeah, so, can be toxic. Yeah. Yeah. It can be toxic. So it is that. So I do make some choices around that. But for me, sulfur is problematic. Garlic, raw garlic for me is really can set me off in my joints. When people say, wow, I can smell garlic uh, in my person a day later. Hey, folks, that means you didn't process it and that you're turning into a sulfur metabolite. And go figure yeah. if you, you didn't, you know, if you missed that stop sign or put, your joints hurt. I put garlic and onions pretty far down. I mean, millions of people have downloaded the the Bulletproof Diet Roadmap because it's free, right? And it, it sort of like stack ranks. It's like, look, some people handle garlic and onions pretty darn well, uh, but maybe because of sulfur, maybe because uh, there's another compound whose name I'm forgetting right now. Um, that, uh, Ellison, uh, Ellison uh, begins Allison. with a 
There you go. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is, it's not that one. There's another one that's actually chemically very similar to THC, but there's mm-hmm. some effects on brain function. And uh, honestly, I get angry when I have garlic. Uh, and, you know, it's turning I also on your smell. CBS polymorphism yeah. potentially if you have that. And um, I smell bad. I, yeah. I don't, I, I, literally, I don't get body odor for days and days, even if I don't take a shower. Granted, my skin biome's healthy, my gut biome's healthy, and all I'm that the kind same of stuff. Way. But the same way. I used to smell like really bad at the end of the day. And, and now I'm like, God, I must be sick if that happens. And well, if you eat garlic, it changes that. So. It does change that. And you know what I do know is if you cook garlic, it's going to be, or if you roast garlic, it's going to be gentler. And yeah. there's a tipping point. And the reason why garlic, I call it the body's hierarchy of needs. So if you have a massive fungal infection, garlic will help you on some level. So what's the body's hierarchy of needs? When you come into our clinic, we help you figure that out. But it's not going to be on your on your main stage plate all the time if you have an impaired sulfur processing mechanism, which is being fueled by the glyphosate right now. Okay. You talk about something that's super out there. Uh, and you talk about the relationship between your words and your food. Oh, yes. Walk me through, walk me through that. Okay. Well, we're beginning to see that the emerging science of vibrational everything, we vibrate at certain frequencies. Every thought we think, every word that leaves our mouth has a vibrational frequency. If we have, and this is studies out of University of Pennsylvania and other universities that are showing, and of course the work of Dispenza, Joe Dispenza, who's become an international phenomenon, is that when we entertain thoughts of, I don't want to eat this food, I'm going to eat this and it's going to make me fat, why the heck do I have to cook this meal, I didn't want to cook this meal, you are imparting a low vibration into the thinking, which then has, carries an energetic frequency, which will then potentially lower the, the nutrient vibrancy of that food. And also when we're mad, upset, the pituitary can't signal for the stomach to make hydrochloric acid. So guess what? We're not going to digest our food that well. And so there's multiple effects that are happening on the body biochemically and energetically. And so we say your words and your thoughts have a direct impact on the bioavailability of the foods that you are eating. And words can be in a way poison to us. And thoughts can be poison as well. Uh, now, I, I'm, I'm happy that you say that. And, and you look back throughout all traditions. They bless their food. They say a prayer before food. And uh, you know, I, I've had so many different spiritual and other types of teachers just say, look, you don't have to pray to a specific thing. Just think good thoughts about your food before you eat it. And it probably does something there. I don't know that we understand all the science behind mechanisms uh, but it is certainly not going to harm you unless you're wasting the five seconds it takes to do that before you eat. So it, it's a good practice. I don't always do it, but it, it seems to be a good one. And also identifying a food as a threat yes. versus something that's not food is also very different. Exactly. I love that distinction, Dave. It's not food. It's sort of like I don't even associate with it because I don't energetically connect to it. If it's not a food source, I have no polarity. Yeah. I have no energy around that. I'm not giving energy to it. As opposed to, oh my gosh, I'm going to eat this and it's going to do something to my body. It's already doing something to your body before it enters your mouth. It's funny. If most people, if you walk outside, you just pick up a leaf 
and you eat it, you're going to have the worst day of your life if you don't end up in the hospital. Like most plants are just out to just kill you. But yes. you don't walk around going, oh my God, I'm surrounded by these things exactly. that are like laced with poison. Ah, right. Exactly. And so you can look at this thing like chicken and be like, oh, I have a strong aversion to chicken. You'll probably have a worse allergy to chicken. Like, look, I don't eat chicken because it's not compatible with me. Indeed. Like, it's not, I can't eat chicken. I can eat it. I just don't like the effects. Right. And so I totally agree with you. Like, your, your mental mindset, your, your language around food matters. And I'm just going to have to say it again. Kale sucks and black beans suck because they're not food, not, not because, you know, they're evil or anything. So there, is that better? <laughs> Much better. I love it. I love right. it. On that note, I know we're com- coming up on the end of our interview, Terry. And your book is called The Wildatarian Diet. Your website is terrycochran.com, T-E-R-I-C-O-C-H-R-A-N-E.com. And thanks for walking us through that very important understanding of how mold in our food and in our environment creates bacterial biofilms that creates amyloids that creates viral load that creates inflammation that starts the cycle again no one has ever elucidated that on the show and it's important so thank you thank you my great pleasure you're welcome great to see you if you guys like today's episode you know what to do pick up a copy of the wildatarian diet if you liked what you heard and if you didn't like what you heard well, then you're a bad person and it's okay. You need to do some meditation. Okay, uh, maybe that's not actually the truth, but you could pick up a copy of Superhuman. You could leave a review for a book that you liked, whether it was Terry's book, my book, or anyone else's book. You could leave a review for the show or you could tip your Uber or Lyft driver. Whatever you do, show some gratitude today. You'll like your life. Thank you for listening. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.